would join me in Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter 2. Thank you. The church has, um, Grace Bible Church has taken this Advent season to study the songs in the book of Luke. And uh, we are looking at four of the different songs. We started out with the song of Mary and then the song of Zechariah. And um, these are both songs that take place pre-Christ's birth. We learn from Mary's song about humility and astonishment that is associated with the sovereign grace of God and how Mary was chosen and selected to do something that was entirely a gift to her. And we see in that song, we see her amazement. We also see in Zechariah's song, or we learn from Zechariah's song in chapter number one, about the sovereign right of God to give and to take, and our responsibility to trust, embrace, and worship. I think sometimes we, we uh, celebrate the Christmas season with a very selfish motivation recognizing that all the things that God has given us and all of the things that God has blessed us with, but not recognizing the things that he asks of us and not realizing that we have been given these gifts, that we have been blessed with the things that we have so that we might worship him. Not just necessarily to make us smile every day. The Lord's work, Christ coming to this earth, was not necessarily to make us happy. It was to save us from our sins, to set us free so that we might no longer be bound to sin, but we might now become followers of Christ. And we might again be able to worship him and honor him in our life. And we see that in the song of Zechariah and the the birth of John and how John is is given to Zechariah as a, a gift and Elizabeth as a gift And the Lord makes it very clear that the gift that I have given you is going to be a gift that is for me, and it's for his use, and for his service, and and for his purposes. And I'm sure, as we talked about last week, that Zechariah had his own fatherly plans, and that many of us would have if we were having our first son, who um, we had prayed for for years, and were not able to to have children, and now the first son is coming, and again, any natural father would have plans, would have ideas, would have goals and visions and hopes and dreams, and the Lord says to Zechariah, his name is going to be John, and in other words, he's not only going to name Zechariah's son, but Zechariah would be specifically used for the glory of Christ. And sometimes it's hard to be around Christmas time and realize that God has called us to himself. God has come to save us so that we might not live selfish lives, but we might, we might live a life that's committed to him. We might live a life that is boldly proclaiming his glories and his graces. This morning's song is known as the song of the angels or the angels song. This is the first song that occurs really in the same time frame as Christ's birth. It's a a post-birth, but it's really closely connected, if you're dealing with the time frames, to his birth. And it's exciting that we fall on this one this week. This is really our our Christmas service. Um, Christmas is just three days away, right? Was that that actually informative to some of you, right? (laughs) Oh, my goodness, I better go out and go shopping, Christmas is on Wednesday, and I'm just thinking this morning and yesterday just how, um, how sneaky Christmas is now. As I get older, it's like it's just kind of there, and um, I think I, I went shopping yesterday for the first time, and, and I bought one gift, so I have some other gifts to buy, so... My family knows that that's the way that I am, though. My wife does all the Christmas shopping up until the week of Christmas, and then I do my Christmas shopping. But it sneaks up on us, doesn't it? And um, this this is a a time where, in in chapter number two, where we actually get to read about the birth of Christ and and his, his purposes for coming into the world and what he desires of us, and it, it, all, it, all, it all relates together. 
Uh, the theme of this psalm, if I was going to give the song uh, of the angels a theme, it would be the purpose of Christmas or the purpose of Christ coming into the world. And you might be surprised at what the Lord's purposes are, but I believe that he gives us a, a pretty clear picture. Just this is one verse, and um, he gives us a pretty clear picture from this one verse. So we're going to look at this. We're going to really start in verse 1 and go down to this song. But before we do that, let's pray together. Now, Father, we do thank you for a season that has been set aside to recognize the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior that, um, Lord Jesus, you came into this world to save us from our sins. You accomplished that task in your, in your birth, in your perfect life, in your death, and in your resurrection. And now all of those who are willing to place their faith in you experience this extraordinary salvation that only you can give. Lord, help us to be mindful this morning that this salvation that you bring, that you offer, that you give as a gift is meant to accomplish some purposes it's not meant to just be empty. It's not just meant, Lord God, to make a smile. But, Lord, we trust that you have a bigger purpose and a bigger plan in it all. We pray that you'll help us to understand that plan and purpose and that you will be glorified in the discussion of it. In Christ's name, amen. Join me, if you would. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 14, but we're going to read it in sections. And we're going to stop and meditate for a few minutes about some principles, some practical things that we can see as the story of Christ's birth unfolds, and uh, some truths that we can be blessed by as his story unfolds. So beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cyrenius, or Quirinius, however you would say that, was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each one into their own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, which in, in our modern-day vernacular would mean engaged. Um, they were considered married, but there was no physical relationship between the two um, up until the point where the marriage was consummated. So that would be the idea of betrothed. The Bible says that she was with child, and we know that she was with child as a result of the Holy Spirit, as the Lord has come to her, come to Joseph in previous uh, texts to describe how this is all going to take place. This is not going to be a natural birth, but a supernatural birth. So we stop there for a moment and we just meditate on the providence of God. We see in this passage of scripture that there's a decree that goes out from the Roman leader, Caesar Augustus. Um, in, in this time, historically, Caesar Augustus was the most powerful ruler in all of the world. He would have been known as the um, leader, of, a leader of, that, of that day and age of the world. And we often refer to even our own president in that way that uh, he is the leader of, this, of the modern world. And Caesar Augustus would have taken on that role as a Roman leader. He had uh, extraordinary influences across the entire world. So we see Caesar Augustus making this decree that all the world should be registered. Now this decree is not by accident, but there's a purpose behind this decree. 700 um, to 750 years prior to this, the prophet Micah, in Micah chapter number 5 and verse number 2, gives a prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, that he would be born in Bethlehem. So you have a prophecy that's 700 years old that must be fulfilled in order for the Messiah to be, to be trusted, to be believed. If any prophecy of the Messiah was not trusted and believed, it would make his ability to save or his ability to be trusted in question. So this prophecy 700 plus years prior was, was set up and now is being fulfilled by, this, by the providence of God in that he is orchestrating circumstances. He is taking and utilizing great rulers of the earth to accomplish his purposes. This is how God's providence works. He takes our circumstances, he takes our situation, and he works out his sovereign plan. God is working out, even today, 
God is sovereignly working out his plan by providentially orchestrating circumstances and situations in our lives. No different than that of the time of, of Jesus Christ's birth. Okay? Caesar Augustus did not accidentally make this decree. It was sovereignly decreed by God before the foundation of the world. Caesar Augustus was simply a tool by which God was going to get his servant Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. So we see right away, we see God. And God is in all of these passages of scriptures. God's providence is there. God's sovereignty. God working out his will and his plan and his purposes in these situations and in these circumstances. We also notice in these first five verses the mention of King David. And we talk about twice in this passage of Scripture, the city of David is mentioned, and once in this passage of Scripture, the lineage of David is mentioned. You say, why does he mention David so much in this passage of Scripture? Because Jesus Christ is going to be the fulfillment of all of the promises of God in the Old Testament that there would be a king who would sit on the throne of David and who will, who will reign forever. There is a promise that David's throne would be established forever and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. That is why we see David mentioned here. We're seeing this connection, this flow that begins in the book of Genesis and, and it climaxes, if you will, in the Gospels and it's ultimately fulfilled in the book of Revelation. This is, this, is this is a thread, if you will, all throughout the scriptures. We see that God always keeps his promises. The promises that he made thousands of years ago that have not yet been satisfied, God is going to keep those promises. And Jesus Christ is an expression. It is a confirmation of that taking place. So we see the providence of God. We see the promises of God and and the fact that God will, will keep his promises. The Bible tells us in Titus 1 and verse number 2 that God cannot lie. Can I submit to you this morning that the Christian life is built around hope in God keeping his promises? It is built in that reality that I believe in my heart that God is going to keep his promises. And the Bible tells us that the hope that we have is an invisible hope. It means that we believe in something that we cannot see. We trust in something that we cannot understand. God always keeps his promises, even if they're thousands and thousands of years old. And God will always keep his promises to us. Things that are still yet to be fulfilled about the kingdom of the Lord coming about deliverance from different things in our life. God will keep his promises, and we see this in the birth of Christ. This is all being exposed to us. It's all being, being shown to us through this simple narrative. Let's read on. The Bible says in verse number six, and while they were there, the time came for her, for Mary, to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We stop there for just a moment and what we recognize here is the lowly nature, the humble nature of Jesus Christ's beginnings. We can't neglect to see that the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords was born in a stable. He was born in a place that was made for, an for animals to dwell he was, made, he was born in a place that was made for, for, um, for animals to be fed and for it to be smelly and stinky and, and disgusting. And, 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 and you, those words are not inappropriate because there's a reason why he was born in a place that was smelly and stinky and inappropriate for a human being to be born. He was born a lowly birth. He had a lowly beginning. He had a humble beginning. Not, not what we would see as a king's birth. Not what we would see and expect from somebody who's going to be the king of kings and lord of lords. He, he, had, a, he had a very humble beginning. He was not only born in a barn, but the Bible says his, his, his place of, of being laid like you guys have a crib, right? He was born in a feeding trough. I mean, he was, he was laid in a feeding trough where the animals would come and eat. The Bible says that there was no room for him in the inn. 
We see even in Jesus Christ's birth, his rejection, the fact that there would be no place for him and there would be no place for him in the heart of the Jewish people. And in John chapter number one and verse 11, he says he came unto his own, but his own would not receive him. There would be no place for them. I find it interesting that while in the story or the narrative of Jesus Christ's birth, there is no room for Jesus, I find it interesting in Revelation chapter number 12 and verse 8, when the last things are taking place, the Bible says there's a war in heaven. And the Bible says that those who fight against the Lord, which are those who have rejected Christ, he says, there will be no room for them in heaven. It is the exact same Greek phrase that's used to say that when Jesus Christ came into the world, there was no room for Jesus. And then God says in the end, those who reject Christ, there will be no room for them in heaven. The only alternative to being no room for them in heaven would be for them to cast, be cast into a place of eternal fire, which is what we call hell. Jesus had lowly beginnings Jesus came the first time to be the sacrificial lamb, which is displayed by his lowly beginnings. John the Baptist said it well when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ came to be a humble servant. There is coming a day, the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ will come back, and he will come back with white robes, and he will come back with vengeance. And he will come back to establish his kingdom on the earth. This was not the reason for his first coming, but it will be the reason for his second coming. Jesus Christ is going to come back and fulfill all of his promises. He will establish a rule on this earth. He will place all unrighteousnesses under him and condemn them. And the Bible teaches us that he will rule with us. This is what we see in his, in his humble beginnings all in this narrative. Read with me, uh, read along with me uh, further. The Bible says, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And we'll deal with the shepherds here in just a few moments, but before we get to the shepherds, let's look at some other thoughts here. The Bible says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe, a baby wrapped in swallowing clothes and laying in a, in a manger or in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, and that's where we'll be finishing up this morning. But let's look at a few thoughts about the this, these things here. First of all, the angel of the Lord. This angel is likely Gabriel, and we draw that from the fact that Gabriel was the one who came to Mary, and Gabriel was the one who came to Zechariah, so it seems like Gabriel is the main communicator. He's the one who is communicating to mankind about the um, birth of Christ, in addition to that, when he comes to Zechariah, he is called the angel of the Lord in the same way as when he talks to the, when the angels talk to um, the shepherds here, they are also referred to the, as the angel of the Lord. So this is likely Gabriel here in this situation, and he's coming to communicate to them. But Gabriel doesn't come alone. The Bible says that Gabriel is, is, um, comes bearing the glory of the Lord. It means the glory of the Lord is on Gabriel, or the glory of the Lord is shining around Gabriel. This is a very fearful thing. We see this in all three of the narratives, Mary, Zechariah, and the angels, that there's an immediate fear that comes over each one of those individuals as they are put in a situation where they are impacted by the glory of God. In other words, the glory of God is shining in front of them, and they're impacted by it. This is no small thing. Without the Messiah, without the Lord Jesus Christ, without the Savior, a sinful man seeing the glory of the Lord was like a sinful man standing in the presence of a perfectly holy judge without any means of being accepted, but only condemned. Let me say that again. Without the Messiah, without the Savior, a sinful man seeing the glory of God 
was like a sinful man standing in the presence of a perfectly holy judge without any means by which he is to be accepted, but only condemned. Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord and he falls down on his knees. Bible calls him undone or broken. Moses, when he sees the glory of the Lord, he is told, or when he asks to see the glory of the Lord, he is told, if you see the glory of the Lord, you will surely die. Moses, when he gets a glimpse of the glory of the Lord, hides in the cleft of a rock. He hides from it. Daniel, when he sees the glory of the Lord, the Bible says that he has no strength in his legs and no strength in his body. Now, I, I can understand a little bit about what he's talking about. I've, I've had heat strokes before. I don't know if you've ever had a heat stroke before. One time, I'm going to share a personal story with you. I won't give you all of the details, but I'll give you some of the details. One time, I sat in a jacuzzi, a hot tub, too long. And my wife had to drag me out of the hot tub and the jacuzzi because I lost all strength in all of my muscles in my body. I could not, I literally had no ability to do anything because of that heat stroke. The Bible says that when Daniel stands in the presence of God, he crumbles to the earth. And that's the picture of it. His legs and his arms and everything lose strength and he, and he crumbles before a holy and righteous God. Moses, when he goes to Mount Sinai, the Bible says that the glory of the Lord rested on the mountain and anybody who would touch the mountain would die. You remember the story of Uzzah who touched the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of the glory of God. And when he touched the Ark of the Covenant, he immediately died on the spot. You remember Aaron's sons who make a sacrifice to the Lord or who offer a tainted sacrifice to the Lord. And the Bible says that the flames come out and they consume them. I'm reminded of Revelation 6 and verse number 16 at the end when the glory of God is shining forth in his judgment. And the, and the Bible says that the people cried out that the rocks would fall on them from the mountains rather than standing in the presence of the glory of God. If we don't think the glory of God is something that's fearful, we don't understand his word. To stand in God's presence as a sinful individual, as a sinful human being, means to be condemned and utterly condemned. And to face wrath like no man has ever faced wrath before. Folks, this is what drives us to Jesus. This is what makes Jesus significant. This is what makes Jesus matter. If you don't understand the, 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 the horribleness of the glory of God for an unsaved person, you will never understand the glorious grace of God for one who receives and embraces what Jesus Christ has done for them. Christmas will mean nothing to you unless you embrace the fact that if I stood in the glory of God without Christ, I would be utterly destroyed. I'm thankful he doesn't stop there. I will tell you this. The angel of the Lord that's mentioned here that brings extraordinary fear into the hearts of individuals is the same Lord that's mentioned when he says that this Savior in the city of David is Christ the Lord. The same Lord that strikes fear into the heart of every man is the same Lord that can save us. He is the same Lord that can deliver us. It's not a different Lord. It's not a different Lord that, that strikes fear in the heart of man by his glory and then, and then can save men. It's the same Lord. The very Lord that struck fear into those, into those men, those shepherds, is the same Lord that's laying in that, in, that, uh, in that feeding trough. That's the same one. He strikes fear in the heart of men, yet he comes to bring deliverance. He comes to bring salvation. It is the glory of the eternal Lord that brings condemnation and judgment. Yet it is the grace and sacrifice of the incarnate Lord that brings mercy and forgiveness. I might submit to you this morning that a God who is not able to make you tremble 
is also not a God who is able to save you. A God who is not able to make us tremble doesn't have the power to save. We must realize that this is the same Lord. He's called Savior in this text, Deliverer, Preserver. He is the Savior. He's going to restore mankind to to God. He's going to restore peace. He is the Messiah. He's called the Messiah, which means anointed or chosen one. This practice goes back to the Old Testament with the prophets and priests and kings. They were anointed. They were anointed to do a certain task or service for the Lord. The elements or the furniture in the Holy of Holies and in the tabernacle and in the temple were also anointed for the Lord's service. This is the Messiah, Christ, the one who has been chosen from the foundation of the world to satisfy the wrath of God towards sinners and bring salvation and deliverance to them. Getting back to the shepherds, I just wrote this down in this thought, shepherds, question mark. (laughs) Why did God come to the shepherds? Why did God come and seek out shepherds? This makes no sense, really. Logical sense, Jesus Christ should have never come to shepherds. But yet, the angels of the Lord come to shepherds. In reality, he should have come to some noble group or some rich group or some important group or some intellectual group or some significant group. Maybe the Pharisees would have been a good group to go to because they had it all together. But the angel of the Lord didn't choose these people. The angel of the Lord chose shepherds. And during this season, shepherds were considered low, lowly people. They were of low regard They were considered by the culture as dirty, smelly, and outcast. They weren't even considered as worthy witnesses in a court case. They weren't considered reliable. It was said of them, if you purchase something from a shepherd, it's likely that it has been stolen first. This is how they were revered during this season. They were likened to the tax collector's and the lepers. I was reminded as I was working through this of the time when, G, when, when Samuel comes to anoint a king in Jesse's house. Do you know who's not invited to that anointing? It's shepherd boy David. Not enough. Not significant enough. Not important enough. Not intellectual enough. Not smart enough. Not big enough. Not strong enough. Enough for God. Enough for God. I believe the Lord came to the shepherds in this moment to tell of Christ's birth because he was displaying to us who he truly came to save. He was displaying to us who he came into this world to bring salvation to. The Bible tells us that the Lord did not come for those who were not needy. The Lord did not come for those who did not need a physician The Lord did not come for those who were self-righteous and had their own way to God. The Bible teaches us clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world for sinners. He came to those who were unworthy and undeserving and had no path to salvation of their own. It is sad to consider the fact that we live in a culture today of religion where we all have our own paths to God. But yet the Bible teaches clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These were simple men. These were insignificant men. They didn't matter. But the Lord mattered, and he came to them. If you have time in your own reading, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, it talks about the type of people that the Lord chooses to save. And it's the same as shepherds. The last thought in regards to our introduction, and the sermon won't be long, why did he give them a sign? These are just questions that go throughout this story. Why did God give them a sign? Wasn't a sign horrible? Didn't the Lord say a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign? Didn't the Lord condemn the seeking of a sign? You know what's interesting about this? These shepherds never ask for for a sign, but the Lord gives it to them. 
I believe what we learn from this is that the Lord doesn't treat everybody the same. I believe that there's a special favor the Lord has towards those who are of a humble spirit. I believe that the Lord will open the hearts and the minds of individuals who are humble before him and give them things that they could never have imagined receiving. And those who are arrogant and full of themselves will seek after things that they want so badly and never receive them. Matthew 13 says it this way, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear. For many, um, the Bible says, for many prophets and righteous people have longed to see what you see, but they do not see it. And to hear what you hear, and they do not hear it. Might I submit to you that Matthew 11 says the almost the exact same thing, except for it says this, that God has chosen to hide these things from the, from the righteous from those who are intelligent, from those who are somebodies, but reveal them unto babes. He's not talking about babies either, folks. He's talking about the insignificant people of this world. He's talking about the humble people of this world. He's talking about those who recognize their insignificance and unimportance and realize that he is significant and he is important. Folks, this is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. There's so much to learn there's so much to learn from this narrative of Jesus' birth. We didn't even, we, just in this introduction, we didn't even touch the surface. I would encourage you to read it and, and unpack little details that are mentioned throughout it. But where I want to spend a little bit of time, just as on one verse in this angel's song, there's just a few things about this song that are going to be helpful to us this morning. And again, I just remind you that the... the, the um, the theme of this psalm, this song is, um, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? In other words, this is a song that says to us, this is why Jesus came. This is what Jesus is going to produce. This is what Jesus is going to produce. This is his message to us. As I go through this um, unfolding of this verse, I want you to know in, in advance I'm going to replace the word birth with the word incarnation. The incarnation means the embodying of something. It means to put flesh on something. The reason why I'm going to replace the word birth with incarnation because I believe that this song is not only referring to the birth of Christ, but it's referring to the full impact of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. I believe that they're all compiled into this one simple verse. His life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, all compiled together to accomplish the, the song that is sung here. We must always remember that Jesus Christ's birth agrees with his life, his life agrees with his suffering, his suffering agrees with his death, and his death agrees with his resurrection. They're all in harmony together, and they're all working to accomplish the same thing. So, with that, what was Jesus' incarnation meant to accomplish? It's two simple things mentioned here in this verse. Verse 14, it says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth... Peace amongst all whom he is pleased. So there's really two things here. There's two things as to what the Lord was accomplishing when he came to this earth. Okay, two things that the Lord was accomplishing when he came to the earth. And then one final thought that we'll get to, which is, who is that meant to impact? Is it meant to impact everybody or just meant to impact us? So let's, let's dive in here for a moment. First thing that he says is glory to God in the highest. The word highest here just means it's a, it's a if you could take phrase one and just uh, look at phrase two, you'll see that you have uh, peace on earth and glory to God in the highest. So you're talking about heaven and earth here. Glory to God in heaven and peace on earth amongst men. The word glory here means dignity, honor, praise, and worship. And then the secondary meaning of it is opinion, judgment, or estimation. Okay, so Jesus Christ came into this world to bring glory or honor or dignity, to dignify, to honor, to praise, to worship God through men, ultimately. He came to worship God through us. He came to, to bring us to a place where there's a decision that's made in our hearts to honor God. 
In other words, let me say it this way. Jesus Christ came to reflect on God in such a way that we would worship him. The work of Jesus Christ is meant to accomplish the worship of his people. That's what worship means. It's it's meant to accomplish honor that we give him. It's, It's meant to accomplish praise. So when we think about the work of Christ, we praise God. When we think about the work of Christ, we honor God. When we think about the work of Christ, we revere God. The work of Christ was meant to bring us to a place where we make a decision, and the decision that we make is meant to honor and praise God. To glorify means to cause an honorable, praising, worshipful opinion of somebody. To cause a person to look at God favorably and worshipfully. So Jesus Christ came so that we would look at God favorably. That we would see him as being worshipful. And not as being worshipful, but as being worthy of worship. Jesus Christ's work in this world was meant for mankind, specifically believers, to see God as amazing. It wasn't meant, in spite of all that the world will tell you, it wasn't meant to think to make you think that you're amazing. I know that that's hard to get in the 21st century America, But Jesus did not come to make you feel amazing. He came to make you see God as amazing. That God in heaven will look down on the earth and see a whole uh, world of enemies. Not friends, but enemies. Those who were at war with God. That he would look down and he would send his only son to to live 33 years and to suffer mockery and, and laughter and rejection and poorness and all of those things. And then ultimately to die without any sins for the sins of those people. Listen, that makes us see our God as amazing. That's why Jesus came. He came that you would see God as amazing, that you would make a decision in your mind that God is extraordinary. There's a quote from J.C. Ryle. I think it has value to it. It says this, Resolve that by the grace of God, you will make Christianity beautiful in the eyes of the world. Resolve that by the grace of God, you will make God beautiful to the world around you. To glorify God, Jesus came to make him look amazing. Christ glorified God in his incarnation, his earthly ministry. He glorified God in the salvation that he provided for mankind. He glorified God in the way that he lived his life. There would be no one, no parent or no dad prouder than what the father would be of his son Jesus who who committed no sins his whole life. He made God proud in the life that he lived. He made God honored in the life that he lived. He made God honored in the death that he died. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the death of Christ, according to John 1 or John 12, the death of Christ was glorifying to the Father. It's hard to understand that, isn't it? We look at that and we say, wow, a father sending his son to die who had done nothing wrong, how is that glorifying to the Father? It is glorifying to the Father by the souls that he will save by his works. Christ glorified God by his death. He glorified God. He made God look amazing by his death, by his life, by his birth. Jesus made God look amazing in every way. Can you say amen to that? He did, didn't he? Now get this. Jesus Christ did not only come to make God look amazing, but he came to make it possible for you to make God look amazing. Jesus Christ did not only come to make God look amazing, but he came to make it possible for you to make God look amazing. We as Christians, the the Bible in the New Testament even calls us anointed. Anointed, like, like the Old Testament things. Anointed to do what? To do something for God. Believers are referred to in that way. 
We are called to make God look amazing. Catechism number one, if you know the catechisms, is the chief end of men is to, is to make God look amazing. Right? It is to glorify God. It is to make him look amazing and to enjoy him, which kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? If he's amazing, we should enjoy him. I think, unfortunately, for many of us who are very religious, we look at glorifying God as something other than enjoying him. We look at glorifying God as something other than him being amazing. Everyone is called, who is, everyone who is born of God is called to glorify him, to make him look amazing. We must remember this. Mankind's sin so Adam and Eve were created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that. They were created for the glory of God. Adam and Eve sinned. Their ability to outwardly express the glory of God was distorted. You could no longer look at Adam and Eve and see the glory of God. What you looked at when you saw Adam and Eve is you saw flesh and sin. And it was passed down from every generation after this. So you must recognize that our sins have caused us to not be able to properly, externally reflect the glory of God. Our flesh is that which hinders us from making God look amazing. Your flesh wants you to look amazing. Your flesh thinks the car down the street that you want to buy is amazing. Your flesh thinks all of these things. But very rarely, or if ever, will your flesh see God as amazing. Your flesh is the problem. The Bible says that mankind's sins have separated them from God. Our sins have separated us from God. It is the fallenness of mankind that causes us to be lustful, proud, and greedy, which in no way reflect glory to our amazing God, do they? Do they? Mankind's sin warped our ability to glorify God externally. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection makes it possible for mankind to glorify God again externally. We are given a second chance through the glory of Christ. Hebrews 1 and 2 Corinthians 4 both tell us that Jesus Christ is the express or the exact image of God, Right? And the Bible also tells us that when we get saved, Jesus Christ comes to live inside of us, which, is, which again enables us to glorify God through, to glorify God through our own lives. But we have to submit to the Spirit and not live in the flesh. Through Christ, the image of God is restored, and through the Holy Spirit, the image of God is is seen. Through Christ, the image of God is restored, and through the Holy Spirit, the image of Christ or God is seen. This is what Galatians 5 is referring to when it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. It's an attitude. Glorifying God is not only about salvation, but it's also about sanctification. Letting what's on the inside come on the outside and letting people see it. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2, 13, 12 and 13 that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, meaning we're to let it be seen. You're familiar with Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light so shine before men, right? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus came to this earth. Christmas is all about Jesus Christ coming to this earth for one reason or for two reasons. One to begin with was to glorify God, that he would make God look amazing and that you would make God look amazing. Number two, Jesus Christ came into this earth so that there would be peace. The word peace here just means rest, quietness, and then the word one is used to describe it, or I would just say unity. The Lord Jesus Christ came to bring unity to this earth, to bring peace on the earth. There's three types of peace that can be brought into this earth through Christ. Number one is when, we, when a person comes to the Lord, they are restored to peace with God. 
They are brought back to a state of peace with God. The Bible says that prior to salvation, we are the enemies of God. And after salvation, we become the friends of God. God has brought us to himself to experience deliverance and salvation. He has come to give us righteousness. I would encourage you to read 2 Ephesians 2, 12 through 16, which says, By the blood of Jesus Christ, we who were afar off, we who were aliens from God, were brought nigh to him, were brought close to him, were restored to him. The peace that God, that Jesus Christ came to bring is a peace with God. This is the ultimate peace, the most significant peace. And listen to me. Peace with God is not based on what you do or what you don't do. Peace with God is based solely on what Jesus Christ has done for you. Jesus Christ did not come into this world to die for your sins so that he could give you a formula that you could work out and save yourself. Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save those who were lost. I find it interesting that we often think of somebody being lost, finding their own way. We lose sight of the fact that being lost, in essence, means that you have to be found. Somebody has to come searching for you and find you because you're not going to find yourself. Romans 3 says no one seeks after God. And if you had a question about that, it says no, not even one. Peace with God is to be had through and in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. Once we have peace with God, the second type of peace that we need to have is peace with self or peace within John 14 says, peace I leave with you, Jesus speaking, my peace I give to you, not as, the, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus Christ came to set you free from internal turmoil. And how do we get set free from internal turmoil? We get set free by the grace of Christ. Internal peace, spiritual peace. That is often challenged by guilt, discontentment, and worry. Jesus Christ came to remove guilt. He came to remove discontentment. And he came to remove worry. Why? Because he was planting peace in the world. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He didn't only come to bring peace with God, peace with self, but he came to bring peace amongst each other, to bring peace with us. Romans 12, 18 says, if it's possible, so far as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. He wants us to be at peace amongst ourselves. He wants us to be gracious towards each other. He wants us to be forgiving towards each other. He wants us to be kind towards each other. This peace is simply the result of two things. It's the result, first of all, of understanding what Christ has done for you in forgiving you and showing you grace and showing you kindness and showing you mercy. The more you know what Christ has done for you, the more you'll be able to show it to others. Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even like Christ hath forgiven you. It is built on your understanding of what Christ has done for you. And may I submit to you that the most critical and harsh people in the world today that call themselves Christians, the problem is, is they have not yet embraced what Christ had to do to save their souls. And it's built around the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians chapter number five, Galatians chapter number five. The Holy Spirit indwelling an individual produces all things peaceable. Have you ever had somebody that you had a hard time being at peace with that was loving and gracious and forgiving and kind and patient and the whole list? It's easy to be at peace with those people, isn't it? And may I submit to you that that's exactly what every Christian should be. My problem this morning is this, and I believe that our problem this morning is this, is we're celebrating a Christmas in which we don't bring any gifts to the one whose birthday it is. We celebrate because we want, want, want. 
but he has come to bring something to us. And the way, that we, the way that we give him a gift is by responding to it. He has come to call us to glorifying God. He has come to call us to peace. And this is how we respond to it. This is how we honor him. You can't even count the number of times, especially in the book of John, but all throughout the Gospels, how many times Jesus talks about peace, leaving peace, giving peace. My peace I give to you. In John 17, he prays at the very last of his prayers, also known as the high priestly prayer, he says, Lord, let them be unified. Let them be unified. Now, who is this, who is this calling for? And I just want to just mention this. The Bible says at the end of this verse, for those, um, to those whom he is pleased. So I just want to say this. This calling of peace and glorifying to God is not a calling for everybody. The Lord holds, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're professing to know Christ, you are now responsible to glorify him and to be at peace amongst yourselves. The word, the word, the wording here, those with whom he is pleased, simply means those with whom God has put his favor so that means that God has blessed you as an individual in a very special way. He has, he has chosen to pour out favor on you that you totally do not deserve. He's chosen to do that. And here's what he says in return. You are called to glorify God. You are anointed to live a life that makes God look glorious. And you are anointed to live a life that, that is unifying with people. Jesus Christ's work in our lives, folks, was not a work of worthy and worthy. It was a work of worthy and unworthy. It's not a unity that's built upon both parties being worthy. It's a unity based upon one party being worthy, the other party being completely unworthy, and this party shows mercy and grace and kindness. I believe that we live in a culture today that thinks of unity as something that we show to those that we completely agree with. Submission and humility is to those that we, that we, are, that we are in harmony with. Listen to me, grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness all demand that you have to be at disagreement with somebody to show them those things. Grace is giving something to somebody that they don't deserve. God has shown you special favor if you're saved this morning. God has shown you special favor and he is requesting of you to respond to it with showing glory to him and showing and having unity amongst yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, the Bible says, for God hath not destined us or predestined us for wrath, but instead he has chosen us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is special favor that God has put on an individual who is not worthy of it. So how do you respond to that special favor? This is who's called. This is who's been chosen. This is who's responsible for it. Sometimes we like to look at the world around us and we like to think of ourselves as being really high and we, we put the world around us on this standard that God doesn't even put them on. This calling is not to the world around us. This calling is to the church. It's to you and it's to me. The Bible says in Luke 12 and verse 48, to whom much is given, finish the verse for me. To whom much is given, much is required. And the opposite of that is also true. To whom much is not given, much is not required. In closing, since it's Jesus' birthday party, amen? amen? Since it's Jesus' birthday party, it makes sense to honor him and to give the gift of glorifying God and being at peace on earth to him. Let me give you some practical thoughts. How can you this Christmas give honor and give gifts to Christ? A few things. Glorify God. Submit with humility and thanksgiving to the saving grace of God. If you will accept Christ Jesus' sacrifice for your sins this morning and embrace that he is the most significant thing in your life, that would be the greatest thing that you can do. It would be the most exalting thing of whose birthday it is. Glorify God by evaluating and altering your priorities. 
making sure this season that God is superior and supreme in every category of your life. That's how you make him look amazing. When God takes second in your category list or your priority list, it makes him look insignificant, no matter what you're talking about. But when God takes first place, just do it around Christmas, all right? Or maybe the whole year. Submit to the work of the Holy Spirit by manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Note this. God is not concerned as much about what you do as he is about your attitude in living life. Some of the most righteous people, some of the most intelligent people, some of the, most, some of the smartest people in the world were the Pharisees of the Bible. And the Lord called them some really, really bad names. Not cuss words. But he did, didn't he? And Jesus was completely gracious towards those who were of a humble heart, who were prostitutes and drunkards. We don't get that, do we? How about this Christmas? Let's just display the glories of God by living in the fruits of the Spirit. Use your body and your tongue in an honorable way. Learn how to use your body for his glory. Learn how to use your tongue for his glory. And overcome an area of addiction, temptation, or weakness in the Lord's strength. These are the ways that we glorify God. And then, lastly, peace on earth. A few things practical. Number one, refuse to worry, murmur, and complain. Refuse this holiday season, just just for the holiday season, okay? Refuse to worry, murmur, and complain. This is how you promote peace on earth. This is what Jesus came for, right? So it's his birthday party, so let's give him what he came for. Develop a closeness to God through prayer and study that reminds us of our harmony with him, of our closeness to him. You will never feel as close to God as you can feel when you're walking in his word and you're walking in prayer. Submit to one another and submit to those who are over you. This is how you have peace in the earth. Apologize to somebody whom you have wronged. Listen to me, this is very practical. If you can think of somebody right now that you have wronged, a gift to Jesus over this season is to go and apologize to them and say, I'm going to promote peace on earth because this is Jesus' birthday. It's like giving him a gift. Apologize to somebody that you have wronged. Encourage somebody who needs encouragement. Say a kind word to somebody who needs a kind word and then bite your tongue when you feel like saying something hurtful. Bite your tongue when you feel like saying something hurtful. And then lastly, I, think I, I don't think I said this one yet, forgive somebody who has wronged you. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you have bitterness in your heart towards somebody or something that's happened in your life. Give, give Jesus a gift this year of forgiveness. Man, I'd go as far as to say, wrap up some gifts with some cards in there and say, this is Jesus' box and this is what we're gonna give Jesus in 2020. Isn't it, isn't it fit into our prayer for Grace Bible Church? Lord, help us to be humble. Amen? Lord, help us to be humble. Lord, help us to be gracious. Lord, help us to be forgiving. Lord, help us to be purposeful. Or Lord, help us to be, um, what's the word? What's the fourth one? Nobody knows. Man. Lord, help us to be truthful. This is our prayer for our church, even though I couldn't think of the word. (laughs) But it's the idea of expectation. Lord, help us to be hopeful, I think is the word. Lord, help us this Christmas to respond to your gift in a way that is honoring to you. Man, I tell you what, we're those types of people. We respond to God's gifts, don't we? We break them open, we rip them open, and we use them for our own glory. How about this Christmas, we do something for him? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word today. Thank you for this season. Lord, help us. So help us, Lord, during this season to to recapture the purposes of Christ, to bring glory, to make you look amazing, Lord, and to make, to produce, to, to pursue peace on this earth. I pray that you would bless this season, that you would bless this sermon, and that it would bring glory to your name. 
and bless your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.